Namo Dasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Dasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo Dasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble and fully self-awakened one. I just want to say a few words about um, Sangha. Uh, the word Sangha is uh, traditionally, or in the East anyway, it only refers to the uh, monastic orders, the monks and the nuns. <clears throat> but in the West it's become a sort of self-referential word where Buddhists refer to themselves as the Sangha. So it also has been widened out really to include everybody. And that shows the effect of the secularization of Buddhism and the role of lay people. But uh, I just want to take you back to the beginning just to show you how, how it sort of began. So when the Buddha uh, decided that he would teach, so there was some doubt in his mind, maybe over the subtlety of the teaching, who knows. But anyway, he... He went back to his companions, and uh, the first two talks where he introduces his teaching, it seems all of them became fully liberated. <laughs> uh, we have to presume that they'd done a lot of work beforehand, like he had. I mean, he'd done all the practices of uh, concentration, practices of self-mortification, which he didn't gain much from, apart from suffering. Uh, and then, of course, he went off by himself, and... Uh, his, his uh, search turned around upon itself. So instead of seeking happiness, he began to investigate how he was causing suffering. And it was that that led him to his, uh, to his awakening. And that's why we say he's self-awakened. Right? There was lots of uh, practice at that time. Lots of uh, men, mainly men, but also some women, who were leaving society and living as salmoners, as um, the homeless ones. So it wasn't he started a tradition, it had been long there um, within, the, uh, within that society. And it was all part of uh, a great movement in that society, politically. <coughs> politically there was a movement away from um, sort of tribal governance where you had elders and you had a chief elder. So that was like the Buddha's father of the Sakya, Sakya uh, tribe. And then there um, and then it was moving towards monarchy. So actually, the Sakyas, this little group of people just on the edge of Nepal, under the Himalayas, uh, were under the local king of Kusala, of Kosala. That would have been Pasanadi at that time. So they were vassals. In other words, the, the system was becoming what we would recognize as medieval. Okay? So uh, when, he, uh, when he began to teach, certain people... Um, uh, men at first, but then women wanted to join him. And we call it the first ordination. He just said, Ehi pasito, which means come and try. Um, there's a story about him rejecting women for the order, which I'm sure you've, you've come across, where these court ladies, his stepmother, um, stepmother, can't remember who else, they came uh, to join the order and to prove that they were up to the sort of 
uh, raw life of of the monastic order, you know, where you just live out live out in the forest really, without any of the commodities of of that of that uh, of life. And um, when he came to them, he, he didn't think they'd make it, so he denies entry. And it's only when Ananda says to him, "Do you think women can become liberated?" that he says, <laughs> "Yes," and so he accepts them. But there's definitely um, sight, there's definitely little tales in the scriptures that he was accepting women long before that. So this is really, I suppose, uh, the growth of, um, well, the effect of patrimony on, on society, even on the order. So he was, uh, he was accepting people, and then once he had a group of uh, men and women who were fully liberated, uh, the ordination procedure was to take refuge in him as the teacher, as the, living, <coughs> the living embodiment of the Dharma, the teaching he was giving, and then the Sangha which were these people who had intuited Nibbāna at some level, and some of them were fully liberated. And that became, and that's become the lay ordination now. So when somebody wants to join uh, the Buddhist uh, religion, I don't know what you'd call it really, the Buddhist faith or whatever, uh, you would go through that little ceremony, and I'll come back to that. But then, of course, after about 20 years, there were men and women who joined who weren't quite at the usual standard and were doing terrible and naughty things. So he had to establish rules. And it shows that he was very much a pragmatist. He didn't have some sort of ideal as to where he wanted the order to be. <coughs> um, the rules came as uh, the monks and nuns did something which was considered to be uh, not right, not correct. Some of them were uh, like thieving, um, uh, any, any sexual intercourse, uh, all that was, I mean, monks m- made that mistake. And the first monk was, he didn't, he didn't have the penalty of being kicked out of the order. <laughs> and then it goes all the way down to having things you shouldn't have. And so there are ceremonies where you give it up, where you have to hand it back, things like that. So you've got 227 of these rules and many more, which were created as the order went along. So when you look at them, they're sectioned out in order of seriousness. But they're all higgledy-piggledy. And some of them don't pertain anymore. <coughs> like not to sit on woolen rugs. So <laughs> presumably wool in those days was something quite precious. Um, so uh, the, the ordination then became quite complicated. The people were joining because they, because they were in debt to the government. So you couldn't join because if you were in debt. There was a, a physician called Jivaka, who was very famous at the time, who offered his medical services free to order members. So sick men and women joined the order in order to get this free. <laughs> that sounds, sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? So you can't join the order if you're sick. Now that's not an absolute rule. Uh, if you join a particular group of monks or nuns, they can decide to accept you. But... Uh, uh, because if, if they think if, you, if they think your illness is not going to undermine them uh, financially or physically, you know, you have to look after people. But once you're in, then then really you have to be looked after. There's no way. And of course, they didn't do that at that time. Sometimes, and when the uh, the Buddha came across somebody who was really sick, and because 
there was diarrhea and vomiting and all that. Nobody wanted to treat him, so he did it. He did it with an ander. And then he turns to the mum and says, well, you know, you haven't got a mother and father who's going to look after you if you don't look after people. So he berated them that way. So you have the, the order. Now, the order in the East still fills a real role. Um, virtually all meditation teachers are monks and nuns. You do get lay people, but it's, it's almost considered an encroachment on <laughs> the monk's role. Uh, the people who know about the Dharma, who study the Dharma and who teach the Dharma are, for the most part, monks and nuns. And uh, the, ones who, um, <coughs> the ones who live by way of that relationship of um, alms-taking are the monks and nuns. Now, um, the Buddha wanted that relationship... Uh, so I'm coming back to this whole idea about relationship, about attitude, about love. He didn't want the monks and nuns to be self-supportive. He wanted them to continue to be arms takers, uh, to be dependent on lay people for their well-being, for everything they have, to be dependent on lay people. And uh, what was the, um, the other side of the gift was that lay people would go to the monks for uh, spiritual advice uh, for spiritual teachings. So there was that sort of economy of generosity that the one gave to the other as and when was needed. And of course there's this whole idea of karma that by giving, by generosity you accumulate uh, goodness power. Now I know that many people in the East do conceptualise it into some sort of bank account so that when you die, you go to a beautiful heaven because you gave all this food <laughs> to monks. But uh, the basic psychology is correct because remember, whenever you're generous, you're giving something up that you could have used for yourself. Uh, giving up some of your wealth, giving up some of your time. And to do that is renunciation. So the process of liberation is the process of renunciation. Don't confuse that with self-mortification. Renunciation means letting go of attachments. So every time you give something, you're making a step towards your own liberation. And in the commentaries, it makes it clear that the process of generosity leads to liberation by way of renouncing what you would have used for your own personal satisfaction and joy and giving it to somebody else. So... As you do that, your goodness power, that's the proper translation of punya, your goodness power grows. And that goodness power manifests in your growing desire to liberate yourself from suffering. Yeah? Now, um, we have a situation in the West <laughs> where actually some of the best teachers are lay people. Um, and that most of the monks and nuns either can't teach or don't want to. Which is true also in the East. It's not as though just because you become a monastic you're going to be a great teacher. Far from it. And you might not want to. Right? There's other roles you can play within the order. And you might not want to anyway. You don't have to play a role. Really. Uh, when it comes to academic, the understanding of, of the scriptures and whatnot, there's massive, brilliant work being done by academics. Uh, some of the best books on, on Buddhism now are written by people who are 
PhDs, etc., etc. They're not monks at all. They're not, they don't belong to a monastic order. Um, so, two of these major roles that are played by monastics in the East, of being the teachers of the actual practice and the teachers of the teaching, of the actual uh, uh, teaching of the Buddha, has been, as you were, taken away by lay people in the, in the West. So now there comes a real problem. Why would you want to support a monk? Since the economy of generosity has now disappeared. I'm still dependent on you, but you're no longer dependent on me. <laughs> so the inter- there's something undermining that interdependency. Right? There was a fair swap there. You know, you, you fed me and I told you how to be, practice Vipassana. <laughs> now, let's be careful because this comes a bit like a business deal. Okay? So what would, be, what would you think might be other reasons why you might support a monastic? Now, if you take a, a Christian uh, position, the, uh, the monastic orders, beginning with Benedictine, had to look after themselves. So they separated out of society. This meant that there was a cleavage, you see. There was a, the monks were way over there, up in the hills, having a, having a great time. And we were down here. But we didn't have to support them, and they didn't have to teach us. They're fine, they're doing it. But the belief was, of course, that they're doing a lot of prayer, and... Uh, especially these enclosed orders, they're praying for the world and there's a belief that that is doing uh, good. Um, then you get the, this, this amazing saint, St. Francis. Uh, when I saw his patchwork robe made out of um, sackcloth, uh, that was quite a little moment for me. So here was a, here was a, a man and the people who followed him, and St. Clair, who went right back to that absolute poverty and depended upon lay people for uh, their well-being. Although the early, the early friars uh, could work. They could do work and, and get money for it, labour. Um, and um, the connection there between friars and the, and, and the lay people was immediate. Hmm? So, uh, coming back to um, the Buddhist order in the West, uh, there, is this, there is this bit of a problem, you see. And especially if Western people don't really have, don't, haven't really taken on the idea of, of uh, building up a little piggy bank so you get to a, a better place when you die. Right? Uh, most people are very iffy about that. <laughs> First of all, the whole idea of a bank account and the whole idea that you're going to go anywhere after death is very iffy. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, supposedly you don't. And I've given all this stuff away. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. So you've got... <laughs> So there's a whole, a whole area here of, of having to uh, relocate, of having to uh, find some reason as to why a lay person might support a monastic. Now, when the order went to China, you see, beggars, beggars looked down upon you, could not beg. So a famous abbot, whose name I forget, of course, <laughs> said, said no, no work, no food. So in China, the monks began to grow their own food and there's a, there's a lovely little film called White Clouds, something White Clouds, where this American has gone to China and he's gotten to know these Buddhist monks way up in the hills, who knows where they are. And there they are, they're planting their own little crops and, 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 and living, living secluded lives up in the hills. And every so often they come down into the village to collect stuff. I don't know whether they 
they receive it by generosity or not. So uh, you can see that the order had to change there in terms of uh, looking after itself, really. But in so doing, lost its connection with, with lay people. There wasn't that, um, that exchange anymore of generosity. So, why would you want to support me if I didn't teach? If you knew that I was just in this little hut in the middle of Wales, messing about, <laughs> doing a bit of meditation, reading, and I turn up at your doorstep with a bowl. Now, what do you say? You say, what do you want? What's this about? And that often happened. It happened to the Buddha. Uh, some Brahmin really berated him and said, you know, you're useless. You don't do anything. You come here and you're begging food. Who the hell are you? you see? And the Buddha said, well, thank you for the present. I offer it back to you. <laughs> so he <laughs> went on his way. So it wasn't as though everywhere Buddhist monks, they were, they were, thought, they were thought to be worthy of, of donation. So I'd like to offer you one or two... Uh, <laughs> Well, I'll give you one reason why you should support me in my little hut up on the Brecon Beacons <laughs> in the middle of winter. Uh, if, you look upon a mon- if you look upon a monastery as a spiritual hospital, uh, so your body can be diseased, and, we, and we, we're very happy to help people overcome physical diseases. We have no problem with that. There are mental illnesses. Uh, and we're very happy to help people uh, who we see are mentally disturbed and, and need help. So now, there are uh, spiritual diseases. And by which I mean those uh, people who are longing for liberation from suffering. Who actually feel their suffering strong enough, whereby life, as, as we generally know it, has become meaningless. Yeah? So one of the signs of somebody who's moving towards a spiritual life is to realise the meaninglessness of life. What's the point of living? (laughs) I mean, here we are, we've been born, we haven't a clue where we're going, Uh, we fill our lives with doing, Uh, we, we give ourselves a sense of uh, purpose by doing something for others because others say how wonderful we are. And looking back in the old comedian saying, life's hard and then you die. See? So, meaninglessness. Like life, it's, it's an existential crisis that we may, be, we may come across where we find that there's no reason for living. There's no reason for our lives. Because in the end, you disappear, you die. That's the end of it. So that sense of meaninglessness moves towards despair. It moves towards uh, the existentialist philosophers like you know, Albert Camus, who uh, felt that, well, you know, we've got life. Eat, drink and be merry uh, because, that's, because tomorrow you die. That's the end of that. So, people who, in the West, who normally turn up with a spiritual disease, have come across this emptiness. Emptiness meaning meaninglessness of their lives. And somehow, uh, there's, there's something in them which says, well, I don't believe it. I don't believe that life is purposeless. 
Now there is something, that there is some purpose in it. And the purpose cannot be out there. Okay? The purpose cannot be out there because at some point I'm going to have to turn into myself and die. So the purpose must be within me somewhere. And that's your spiritual search. So that's the Buddha, you see. The Buddha is living in an age where he, uh, where the obsession was rebirth. Constant rebirth. How to get out of this constant rebirth? You know, if you did something wrong, you might be reborn as a dog. And then the next life, you're born as a human being. And then the next life, you're born into a happy realm. And then you fall from that and you come back as a human being. So one of the terrors of the age was, was this idea that you'd be constantly reborn. Const- How could you get out of that in any permanent way? And there was the, there were a few people believed in, you know, were materialists. They believed that when you die, that's the end of it. There was also that belief going on. But there was also this search for something which was beyond this constant samsara, this constant onward going. And so when he left on his search, he would have been in that state of meaninglessness. He would have also been in a state of existential crisis. And it manifests in the tale, the legend of him seeing somebody sick, somebody old, somebody dying, somebody dead, a corpse, and somebody sitting under a tree, um, a a salmon, a mendicant sitting under a tree. And all the time, it's put in this sort of mythological way that he asks, you know, what is this? He's never seen this sort of thing before. Does it happen to me? Yes. Sickness, aging and death. And then the possibility of some sort of answer. So that's what really a monastery is about. uh, Or a collection of people who gather together for spiritual purpose is to find what reason there is for living, for being alive. And worse, what's the reason for dying? Is there a purpose in our death? So I hope you continue to put some money in the box so that, I can, so that eventually I can escape to the Brecon Beacons in the little hut, knowing full well that there's always going to be a plate of spaghetti for me when I get down the hill. <laughs> so now, coming back on that, uh, we have this whole problem of, not problem, we have this whole idea of Sangha, community, right? Community. This is, of course, really weighted in all religious traditions, not only religious traditions, humanistic traditions, any tradition. And uh, there's a lovely little saying here when um, the Buddha says in the, in the discourse which, which, sort of te- which is the last moments of his life before he dies. And he says to Ananda that I, I feel happy because I've established the four congregations or the four, um, uh, what do you call them? Yeah, congregations. The, 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 the monks, the nuns, the lay women and the lay men. And he felt that they were now rooted well enough that they would continue with the teachings after he died. And when Ananda says to him at this point, he says, well, uh, the whole of the spiritual life, he says, as far as he's concerned, this is Ananda talking to the Buddha, he says he feels the whole of the spiritual, half the spiritual life, excuse me, half the spiritual life is good companionship, admirable friendship, admirable camaraderie, you see. And the Buddha says, oh, no, Ananda. He said, it's the whole of the spiritual life. The whole of the spiritual life is this interdependency. Is, this a, is, the, is, the, is the whole idea that you're not on your own and that you do need other people. It's not just the other teacher. 
you need other people to support you in your practice. That's why we come together here now. We formed uh, a Sangha and we're helping each other. There's no need to speak, there's no need to talk. Uh, it's something that's happening within us and yet it's so easy for us, it's much easier, shall I say, for us when we know that everybody else in the room is also suffering. Huh? It's much easier. <laughs> it's much easier to, to sit here uh, with all this pain and horror knowing that somebody else right next door to me sitting right here is probably going through worse. Mind you, we normally think they, that they're having a great time. You come in here, anybody's sitting like this, and you think, oh my goodness. That's <laughs> so uh, that's the accent the Buddha puts on uh, friendship when it comes to the spiritual life. And uh, if you consider now, if you were a Muslim living in somewhere like uh, Saudi Arabia, and you just wanted to follow those five hours, those five times a day when you wanted to pray. And right there, in the middle of your coffee break, you got your mat out and off you went. And, and everybody thought, oh, that's a good idea. And they all joined you, see? Can you imagine doing that in London? Or in Dublin? Can you imagine, <laughs> can you imagine getting your mat out in the middle of a work pit, in the middle of a, of a factory or a, or a workplace, and, and just saying, well, I'm just going to do my prayers now. So you can see that uh, to live in a society which has lost that general grounding for the spiritual life, it makes it just that much more difficult for us. You know, just when we want to maintain mindfulness, when we want to not to go out and get drunk, etc., etc., and party and all that, uh, you're considered unsociable. See? Part of our behavior becomes unsociable because we're not, we're not actually joining in um, the sort of regular behavior of people who don't really have any spiritual vein in their lives. They don't, they don't, they don't quite know where they're going with that. All their, all their practices is within their work. And it might be good work too. It's not as though it's work itself is undermined because your good work is undermined because you don't believe in a, in a spiritual life. Far from it. But you can see that because of that, because you don't have that immediate companionship, you're there for, your practice is constantly undermined by the surrounding jury. So it means you have to work a bit harder, that's all. Now, <clears throat> going back to uh, friendship, you see. Uh, just to quote another quote that the Buddha says. says, with regard to external factors, I don't envisage any other single factor like admirable friendship as doing so much for someone in training who has not attained the heart's goal, but remains intent on the unsurpassable safety from bondage. Someone who is a friend with admirable people abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. I mean, that's the point of a friend. That they would support you when you're being skillful and not support you when you're being unskillful. And therefore, you get that support. When you read the scriptures, by the way, uh, I mean, I've translated it as somebody. It's always monk. But it's... But the commentaries tell us that this stands for anybody who's listening to the Dharma. Okay? It's like the phrase, all hands on deck. There's a, what is it, a synectomy? What is it? Come on, where's your, where's your, where's your school? And when it comes to uh, the lay people, there are a few discourses where the Buddha's explaining how we ought to live. And um, here's... Here's, here's, here's him, here he is talking to lay people. And what is meant by admirable friendship? This is the case where a lay person, in whatever town or village he may dwell, 
spends time with householders and householders' sons, young or old, who are advanced in virtue. He talks with them, engages them in discussions. He emulates, consummate conviction in those who are consummate in conviction. Consummate virtue in those who are consummate in virtue. Consummate generosity in those who are consummate in generosity. And he emulates those who are consummate in discernment. He emulates discernment in those who are consummate in discernment. This is called admirable friendship. In other words, seeking people out who have these uh, virtues. Uh, generosity. Uh, what was the other one? Um, faith, generosity, virtue and discernment. Those who have confidence. You know, to be with people who have confidence fills you with confidence. To be with people who are generous makes you want to be generous. To be with people who are virtuous, you naturally want to be virtuous like them. And people who are wise, you tend to listen to them. So there's, there's, his, there's his description of good friendship. But then he goes on. In another passage he says what good friendship is. It inspires love. Good friendship inspires love. It inspires respect. Good friendship inspires respect. It inspires emulation. Good friendship inspires emulation. A good friend listens. A good friend listens. And a good friend gives good advice. A good friend gives good advice. A good friend is able to enter into deep issues with the other. Enter into deep issues. And a good friend helps you not waste your resources. <laughs> waste your money, waste your time. So here's a description of a good friend. But he goes on even further. He says, A friend gives what is hard to give. Oh, that's, that's the test, isn't it? A friend gives, <laughs> gives what is hard to give. So you know your friends immediately. He does what is hard to do. A friend does what is hard to do. A friend has patience with harsh speech and has patience with wrongdoing. So, if you love somebody, you have to presume they're going to hurt you. Yeah? If, you have a, if you love somebody and you think they're never going to hurt you, then you're going to be very upset when they do. <laughs> so, if you presume that your friend, uh, your family member, at some point will do something which is painful for you at whatever level, then you can easily forgive them and re-establish friendship. But if you think they shouldn't do that, if they think that a friend or a family member should not behave like that towards me, and that's it, you cut off friendship, that's it, that's the end of it. Take them to court. Uh, a good friendship is someone whom you can confide in and someone who keeps your confidences. Ah. Someone you can confide in and somebody keeps your confidence in. That's a very deep trust, you know, depending on what it is you're sharing. And often it's very helpful to talk to somebody, to talk out a problem. You know, it can be relieving to the heart to share a burden with somebody. But you wouldn't do it if you thought they'd be often tell, <laughs> tell the very person whom you're, you're complaining about. And free of contempt, free of contempt, somebody who does not despise you. Somebody who may envy you but does not 
and does not act upon it. Somebody who may feel an occasional jealousy, but does not act upon it. So these are, these are good pointers, aren't they? Eh? Don't you think so? I rather like them. <laughs> Points out the difficulty of friendship. So, uh, sometimes, you know, we, we get the impression that Buddhism is really all about vipassana and meditation and, and, uh, and, and, and basically that's what it is. And then we forget that there is a whole eightfold path, that the, the vipassana belongs to the last three, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness. But that feeds into the first one, which is right understanding. But then once you've got right understanding, it has to become systemic. It has to manifest in our attitudes. And as soon as it begins to manifest in our attitudes, it must express itself. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. See? And the whole thing flows around upon itself. The one feeds upon the other. So it's a spiral. It keeps turning and turning. And in this way, within, within a, a small length of time, if we practice with severe dedication... We will no doubt be liberated. <laughs> so I want to, before I end, I just want to have a look at these questions that you uh, that I didn't answer yesterday because they're more to do with the uh, the practice. Uh, I just want to leave a bit of time too for uh, daily practice. Uh, so, is it difficult for me to reconcile? A practicing Buddhist can be a non-vegetarian. Uh, vegetarianism. Uh, I don't know of any Buddhist country where Buddhists don't eat meat, which doesn't tell you very much. Um, it's a special practice of monks and nuns in Burma that they go through the three-month season, the Vasa season, the rainy season, without eating meat. The, uh, the essential problem is the suffering of animals the killing of animals. And it depends upon your connection with that. Obviously, when you're eating the meat, you're not killing the animal. If anything, you're suffering from greed. But you're definitely not suffering from aversion or hatred or anything like that. But um, it's making that connection, really, that when you buy something, you're, you know, you're going back to support the abattoir. You're going back to support the killer of the animal. And so it's up to your own sensibility, really, as to where, as to where you feel you can place yourself in that order. But uh, in Buddhist understanding, all sentient beings suffer one way or the other. And so it's up to the individual to decide. Now, there are some people who actually have to eat meat. And I know somebody who has, a, I think he's got something like a half a kidney or something. And the only way they're going to survive is by, and, and the body won't accept pulses and stuff like that, is by eating chicken. So there is this view that if it's for health reasons, then it, you know, then you should feel okay about that. And there, of course, are situations in the world. If you live in the Arctic, you're hardly going to grow wheat, are you? you know, if you live in deserts, you're going to eat a goat. What are you going to do? If you live in Wales, it's bad enough. <laughs> so, <I> mean, <laughs> somebody wants you to keep sheep. They say, well, what can you grow in Wales? You know. If you're, if you're up in, on the Brecon Beacons, it's pretty, pretty deserted up there. You know? So, remember that the Buddha is very pragmatic. He's, there's, no, there's no ism. He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have agreed with vegetarianism, right? Because uh, idealism doesn't fit in a world which is obviously 
uh, relative. All our morality is relative, it's circumstantial. Um, you can make, a, de you can make a, a, a declaration of not to kill anybody, but I'm sure you can think of occasions when you'd have, you'd have felt quite justified in killing somebody. <laughs> not to take what is not freely given. You remember the old thing that you get at school about, you know, if you're dead hungry, can you steal a loaf? So it's all these. So once you realise that morality is circumstantial, it's um, it's all to do with the situation you're in, etc. You know that. You know that one about the. Um, um, if I can remember it right now, you might have heard this. This is one of these silly thought experiments. You're on a bridge with a very very big fat man, and there's a train coming along, and there are people working on the track. And you can see that this train is going to hit these people. Okay? One way, uh, with about five or six people. right? But if you push the man off, it'll derail the train and save five people. Now, will you push him off? <laughs> it's a dilemma, I hope. None of us have to face. <laughs> <laughs> it's examples like that that show you that morality can be quite circumstantial. You know? So yes, it's up to a person to decide that. I have a, a meditator who comes quite very often, and uh, she simply cannot eat pulses and beans. It just won't take it. <clears throat> so she normally brings sardines or something with her if she's on a, a week-long retreat. So there's also health reasons. And of course, there is the understanding that na nature feeds off itself. There's a, a YouTube. Uh, if you uh, there's YouTube. If you if you type in Yellowstone and you come up uh, with Monbiot, who's this um, who's this uh, writer? Do you know? Do you know what I'm talking about Monbiot? He's not that well known, and he's very much into wilding, wilding the uh, the old places, and. The video shows you how the introduction of about 20 or 30 wolves completely changed the ecology yeah. of Yellowstone Park. I mean, right, now what's he introducing? He's introducing an animal that eats other animal. So you have to understand that, you know, nature feeds off itself. So really, it's, you know, it just comes back to us really. And our, and our particular situation in this society where, <clears throat> you know, vegetarianism is it's very easy to get hold of. You can be a vegan without any problem if you wanted to. Yeah. So, does it ever get easier with the meditation? No. <laughs> That's an easy question. If you keep practicing over years, it gets worse. <laughs> For me, it seemed easier to meditate when I started. Now it seems harder after a few retreats. Dead on. <laughs> because the main reason is that you're digging deeper, you know? I mean, when you come to meditation, you come with beginner's mind and you sit there and you're full of vigor and interest. And then like anything else, it gets boring. You know, who the hell wants to watch the breath? What a daft thing to do anyway. And then, there's, and then, there's, and then the stuff starts coming up. So that purification, you, you just can't, you can't get anywhere without going through it. It's full stop. That's, it's just part and parcel of the course in the break. Uh, but generally speaking, of course, you look back and you think, well, you know, life's changed, my... My attitude has changed, life's just a little bit easier. But that doesn't mean to say it's going to be always like that, because you've got them down. You know? Spiritual life's like that. You know, sometimes you think you're getting nowhere. 
And then when that crisis passed, you find you, you've moved to a slightly different level. So don't give up hope. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. How to establish a daily meditation practice in your life. Ah, so uh, it really is, I think, important to meditate a little in the morning. <laughs> Did you ask? Yeah. And it's, uh, if you can, to do one in the evening, but especially when you come back from a day out or day's work, before you eat, after you eat, you fall asleep. The first, the, the, the beginning of the day is when you set your weather then, where you actually remind yourself you want to maintain this level of awareness, you know, affectionate awareness, to be awake to what's happening. And, uh, and in the, when you come back from a day, uh, just to let whatever, whatever you've accumulated in that day, just to arise, little aversions, little irritations, little anxieties, just to let them come up and, and, and clear themselves out. And then, and then you have a much more sort of restful evening. And on top of that, you know, to stop everything a little bit before you go to sleep. You know, it's not, there's no point in, in launching yourself in the bed after two hours on Facebook or having watched the latest crime drama. <laughs> and then think that you're going to have deep sleep. Well, you may have, of course, but, but generally speaking, it's best to sort of calm down, you know, play play uh, some music, read poetry, do something which, which brings the whole system down. So when you fall asleep, you're taking that beauty, that, that, that beautiful mental state with you. See? And that's how you, how you feel more refreshed, I think. Uh, there's no easy way to establish a daily practice. You've got to, you've got to establish a real religious uh, commitment. So you have to say to yourself, right, I can definitely do 20 minutes every morning. Right, so there's no reason why I can't do 20 minutes. You can't think of that in five minutes, right? And then you, you actually make that sort of absolute determination that for the next six months, that's what you're going to do. And that's how you establish the practice. Yeah? And then if you do it, then you have to promise yourself something like a, like a celebratory meal. And if you don't, you have to promise yourself, I don't know, uh, jump off a bridge or something. <laughs> something. Something terribly wild and terrible. So that, that you know... <laughs> Would, would stop you, for, would keep you at your promise. But really, that's the thing, is to do it religiously for the length of time. And then it becomes an internal habit. And you might miss a day, you might miss two days, but you don't want to miss more than that. I remember Nouriev, uh, the great ballet dancer of the 60s and 70s, said that if he didn't practice one day, it was fine. Two days, he felt it. Three days, everybody else did. Right? So, so if you take that as your standard for practice, then uh, really just keep at it. Uh, if you do miss it and you have to start again, just, you know, don't go into this sort of self-hate syndrome, you know, I'm useless and that's all rubbish. Just start it again. It's important, because that's where the, you accumulate, you see, this is, the, this is your goodness, you accumulate the practice, it accumulates slowly. With so many varied Buddhist practices, is it best to self-teach using the original text, such as combination of available books, audio, etc.? Um, yeah, obviously listening intently to your audio, that's me, thank you, uh, in the first place. Well, absolutely. Um, no, it's, <laughs> no, I think it's important to uh, get hold of a teacher. I mean, when I think of, you know, my introduction... I wouldn't. Well, I tell you, what happened to me was, I read a book on Zen Buddhism. I was impressed by it. I thought, right. So what I did was, I thought, I'm going to practice this. So I was on the way to the shops, which would have taken about, I don't know, five, seven minutes. 
So I'm walking up the road, observing myself walking up the road. By the time I got to the top, I thought, oh, this is going to drive me crazy. <laughs> so I abandoned Zen Buddhism. Uh, later on, through crises and all sorts of stuff, I ended up with a Zen teacher in Birmingham. And um, she came in and she, uh, uh, she sat me on the, on the bench facing a wall, told me to keep my eyes slightly open, dead man's eyes, gave me a punch in the back so I sat up properly. And then her instruction was, watch whatever comes up. That was it, watch whatever comes up. And, uh, and that was 40 minutes of sheer horror and pain and all that. But for some reason, at the end of that, I just knew this was going to get me out of my, uh, the state I'd got myself into. So without that, you see, uh, you've got to, I think you've got to go somewhere. I think you need that, that personal contact. Even if it's only once in a while, it doesn't have to be something constant. But you need to have that personal contact from somebody whom you feel has been there. You know, it's like, like if you climb a mountain, who are you going to... You know, who you're going to get advice off, a geologist or a mountaineer. (laughs) So, yes, Uh, Buddhism involves considerable self-awareness and concentrated practice that many, for various reasons, are not in a position to do. Um, Their mindset, mental health issues, etc. So, is it only for the select few? Uh, Well, it's true to say that Vipassana isn't good for somebody who's mentally ill. In the East, if you turn up at a monastery with an obvious signs of mental illness, depression, or, they just give you meta-practice. They don't give you, they don't give you Vipassana. But anybody, <coughs> anybody who's an ordinary state of madness can practice Vipassana. And what's the problem? <laughs> I mean, we're all, at one level or other, crazy. So, yes, it's... Uh, I mean, that's why this uh, mindfulness has been so uh, successful, really. Because of that. I mean, it's used as a psychotherapeutic intervention and therefore takes away its spiritual purpose. But uh, for the occasional purpose, for the occasional person, just those introductions, just that simple introduction, understanding how suffering is caused, may very well open the spiritual gates for them. So, you know, just because it's being taught as a psychotherapeutic intervention doesn't mean it might not have uh, a spiritual effect on the person. You know, it's not taught like that. It's not taught with, generally speaking, it's not taught with any um, moral uh, instructions with it. But, of course, there is a, a presumed morality in it of compassion. Yeah. Some, uh, you know, some, some Buddhist teachers are a bit negative about it, but I don't, I don't see a problem, really. It's a bit like yoga, you know, body beautiful. What's wrong with that? You miss out on all the rest of it, but at least you've got a beautiful body. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that'll do. Is Buddhism like the major religions of the world who re... As who who um, who see women as inferior? Please say no. <laughs> uh, well, according to the teachings of the Buddha, uh, women seem to be able to become fully liberated like men. 
what society does with that is something else. I mean, uh, I think you can. I think you can say, just looking across the ancient, uh, just looking across the Asian world, uh, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. Where you find Buddhism, I think you find much more equality. Women in Buddhist countries are equally doctors, etc. The first prime minister was uh, the prime minister of Sri Lanka. What was her name? Bandranaika. So, it's, uh, but I mean, it's you know, this is ancient stuff. Patriarchy is embedded. Come the revolution. <laughs> so you're not. Uh, I mean, it comes through the scriptures, which is unfortunate. But it, you don't, uh, I don't see the Buddha. The, um, if you read, for instance, the, the verses left by the elders, both the men and the women, the monks and the nuns, and also lay people, you can see that um, some of the women were just as fully liberated as the men and, and just as much praised and seen as teachers as, as the monks the monks sought them out so yes we're stuck with history I'm afraid it's one of those things uh, these days if you look across the uh, Vipassana teacher scene uh, women are probably in the majority Is that a good sign? <laughs> Are we returning to matriarchy? Heavens above. I shall leave you with that thought. <laughs> I can only hope that my words have been of some assistance. That uh, by your severe devotion to the practice, you may be liberated from all suffering sooner <clears throat> rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.